you're really trying to balance what the hiring manager needs, what the hiring manager wants, and then you're also balancing what the compensation team wants. And then on top of that, you're also trying to build some kind of relationship with these candidates and figure out what they want. So it's so much juggling, and I think they don't get enough recognition for that work. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This is where we lift the curtain on the hiring process and see what goes on on the other side. I'm your host, Dave Fano, founder and CEO at Teal. And this week, we're with Morgan Sanner, an experienced HR professional that creates incredible content online and really helps job seekers navigate the tumultuous process that is the job search. Morgan and I talk about everything that goes into the process of getting a job online. This is mostly focused on companies that are hundreds, if not thousands of employees, but we talk about the budgeting process, we talk about workforce planning, we talk about the composition of human resources departments and who does what, and the relationship between the hiring manager, finance, HR. It's a really cool inside look into how companies operate and the sort of machines they need to get in place to deal with their labor force. And I found it to be incredibly insightful. I learned a ton of things that I sort of took for granted. So I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes, where we kind of lift the curtain on what happens on the other side, how the hiring happens, how what happens in HR. And this week we are with Morgan Sanner, who creates fantastic content. I started following her, I think like a year ago on TikTok and lots of really amazing advice and really good stuff. But Morgan, tell us a little bit more about you and, and what you do in your day-to-day. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited to be on today. I've loved working with Teal in the past, so of course I said yes when Dave reached out. So in my background, I actually graduated undergrad with two years of experience in HR because I did five internships in my time there. And after that, I was lucky enough to get to join an automotive company where I worked in organization development as an HR analyst for three years. And then for the last year and a half, I've been working with a very large federal government contractor as an HR consultant. So through a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work, I've gotten to see really every facet of HR, at least a little bit, which has been really great coming into, you know, an entry level career. Okay, this is awesome. I'm in a very nerdy way, super excited about this conversation. So I think first, right, there's just a lot of jumping to conclusions when we hear terms like HR and people have their levels of relationship with HR. What are the, um, it's like the major buckets of it? Because I know there's like recruiting, but then there's a bunch of other stuff. There's like comp and benefits. And I'm, I'm not even going to start to like list them out. If you could like group them into like the mega buckets of HR, what would you say they are? Yeah, I would say the big buckets are definitely recruiting and hiring. Uh, Sometimes you'll get people that do onboarding in there as well. You also have benefits and compensation that usually go together. Training and development usually end up going together. I would say organization development and DE&I should go together as well. But there's just, and a career in HR can really lead you in so many different paths. And if someone says they work in HR, they may look completely different than someone else who also works in HR. Yeah. And also the companies, right? Like the different companies might have different requirements. If it's a highly regulated industry, they may have more compliance centric stuff in HR. And something, another thing with HR is I think there are functions that sometimes live in HR, sometimes might live in legal, sometimes may live in uh, finance, 
or in operations. And, you know, if the organization is a matrix organization or a functional organization, or they've got regional business units and their own HR department. So HR is really a funky one in the sense of how it's deployed into various business contexts. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think the poor compensation team always gets pulled in a lot of different directions, as well as the DEI team. I've seen a lot of arguments lately about making sure the DEI team sits outside of HR so that way people feel safer going to them because there is this conception that going to HR can sometimes be unsafe. And having the DEI team outside can actually make it a little bit more accessible. Mm-hmm. Like so many strategic decisions, also like where even HR reports into. You know, you're seeing CHROs report directly to CEOs. Sometimes they report to CFOs, COOs. I've seen a few rare examples where it's under marketing. You know, it's like really, and it means a lot. It's like, as you know, as you're looking at companies, seeing where it reports, it does, I do think says a lot about like how the company thinks about it. And if it reports under the CFO, it's really like a cost management thing. If it reports directly to the CEO, then it's really like a seat at the table, thinking about like the shaping of the company. Every sub C wants to report to the CEO directly. And, you know, and so that changes. But I do think it's something that is worth paying attention to when you're considering joining a company. Or even if you're there and you see a change, it, it signals something. I, I definitely think it says a lot if the HR team does not have a seat at that executive table. So what we want to talk about today is all the stuff that happens before we see a job online, right? Because I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding around how a job gets there. It's like, oh, it just got posted. It's like, that could have taken six months to get that one job online, you know, onto the career page of the company. Because there's a lot of weird hearsay of like, oh, companies just leave them up to fish for talent. It's like, it's just so much more complicated than that. Like, Maybe little teeny companies can do silly things like that, but the vast majority of companies that are professional and operating in the real world don't do those things. And if they've got budgets and systems and reporting, give us a high level as kind of like a backbone for the discussion, how a job goes from like the very beginnings of budget allocation, like I might even need it, to getting posted on the company's careers page. Oh, yeah. It starts very, very early. I think saying six months is generous. (laughs) Maybe I've worked at really big organizations that take a little bit longer to move through things. But I think it typically starts with someone recognizing a need, usually someone who's in a leadership position within that department saying, I need someone to fill this role. This maybe specific task isn't being filled. There's a spot on the team where maybe we need someone who's a better collaborator. Something is missing from the team, whether that be a skill or a task, something is missing. So usually then the HR team and the budget team will sit down and say, okay, what do we even have? What could we offer? Is there even budget to offer anything to any person? So if the budget's there, then luckily they can then sit down and start to scope out what the job would potentially look like, which can be very, very complex in figuring out what all tasks they're doing, especially if it's a new job and not a previous job. And from there, then you have to sit down, make sure you're writing a job description that if you have any federal or state laws that apply in that specific area, you want to make sure those are compliant, figure out the salary buckets. That way you can also follow salary transparency laws, make sure all the EEO laws are being followed in the job description. And then eventually it gets posted. (laughs) Yeah, I remember when I was at WeWork and I was, you know, growing a team pretty rapidly. And, you know, I think I was at hiring hundreds of people in the next 12 months. And I was fighting like for like 
two people in a function. And it's like, hey, why do you need this designer? Like, why are you sure we're going to be growing enough in Asia that you need two more designers? Like, could you do it with one? And I had to fight. You know, and this was like way before JD even existed. And this was then, ba- you know, and this was based off goals that I was given of like what we needed to achieve. And it was, you know, it was, it was like financial prudence, you know, it was a good thing. And, you know, the finance department doing that. So who are like the main actors as like departments that are, and then maybe if we could, maybe even like at the, like a job title level, but let's start with like the functions. Who are the actors in that process? Definitely the department lead or whoever would typically be supervising that position. I would say they're doing a lot of the grunt work of doing the negotiating. They're fighting really hard for that position. Usually the HR team, the finance team. And then if the company has it, I guess I would call them like a resource management. So, you know, workforce planning, capacity management. If there's one of those teams, usually they're involved. Sometimes senior leaders get a little bit in the weeds and sometimes they will want to be involved in those decisions too. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because like once <laughs> I would have like stages of fights. So my yeah. first <laughs> path through the ringer would be with finance and HR kind of together and be like, all right, cool. Now you have to go defend this with the CEO. I'd be like, oh, geez. And it was like a whole <laughs> nother fight. I mean, like why I needed it and why I needed all this headcount and how that mapped to the goals. So that's a good point. I didn't even I totally forgot about that part. It feels like an episode of Shark Tank, really. <laughs> You're really fighting for your life there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that, that's really what I want people to see is like how much work, you know, when there's just that much scrutiny on and pressure to fill a position, you know, why you're unfortunately maybe getting rejected from a job or why you're like, why aren't they giving me the benefit of the doubt? Just so much work went into getting that job allocated. And that's why I tell people it really becomes like a risk mitigation game. It's like, who's going to really help me be successful? And I only have so many slots. I just can't afford to take big risks because also if I lose the position and that's not great, then they're not going to give me more budget next year. How would you say you've seen this process differ in like an up market or a down market? Oh, it definitely looks very different in an up market, I think, Especially because when I worked at the automotive company, there was a lot of talk about uh, electric vehicles. So that then turned into an upmarket with the Great Resignation as everyone started moving around. And so, of course, the headcount then goes up. I think that's what we saw in tech, right? Everyone started hiring really, really quickly and they had the budget. So they knew, okay, if I don't use this budget now, it's going to go away. So I'm going to use it. And then all of a sudden, the budget did go away and they said, okay, never mind. And now we know exactly which rules to cut because probably the ones we just introduced not that long ago. You just said something that, I don't know, I don't feel like most people are super aware of the idea of budget going away. Like I worked for, as a consultant for a large like Fortune 500 company. And I remember getting phone calls and be like, hey, what, like, what could we do? That's like interesting. Because we would be like a little free, like consulting R&D wing for them. And I'd be like, wait, what? Like, yeah, I've got this budget and I'm going to lose it if I don't use it. And if I don't use it and I consistently show that I don't use all my budget, they're going to say I'm sandbagging and they're not going to approve more budget next year. So these are some of these just like financial, I wouldn't call it games because I I don't know of a better system. It's just very, very hard when companies are that big, you have to allocate money and it's the only way you can do this sort of planning. So it's not a critique of, and I'm not going to pretend like I know better, So, (laughs) but but it is a thing. Like, and that's why if people don't hire within a certain time range, the budget's gone, like they lost it, right? Yeah, I think we even see 
at least I've seen, between groups, I think that causes a lot of contention because if one manager catches wind of, oh, it's only a month before your close and this person still has a lot of budget, why aren't they giving it to me? But it's because that manager knows if they give up their budget now, next year when it comes to it, they're not going to get the same size budget. Their budget's then going to shrink and they know that's going to then impact them down the road. So it's a lot of I think it makes the organization less optimal because you have people fighting for these budgets and maybe they don't need the budget that year, but unfortunately you have to keep it or you're going to lose it. So let's talk about once the roles are created. So I've gone through, I've said, look, given the goals that you gave me, you know, I think I need four head count for this position. I need three head count for this position. I'm going to create head count for this position. Now, that's not even like automatic, right? That's like released for the year or whatever, however, company budgets, quarterly, yearly, half, year halves, whatever. But it's also not like you can hire all those people today, right? There's usually some sort of like, okay, now that's spread out over 12 months, you get a certain release. You know, is that where like a, a, another function you mentioned was workforce planning? Is that typically under HR and seen like as a kind of like business partner that the various functions can use? Or is that like under finance? When I worked in the automotive company, I think they actually sat on their own. They were not in finance or HR. So we really, even as an HR team, we did not have a lot of access to them, which was really interesting. I think a lot of times these organizations within organizations end up pretty siloed. And I think even at the company I'm at now, they're also in a different segment. They're all on their own. I don't know if that's how most people do it. So it's a function called workforce planning. What do they do? They usually are sitting down. I think of them kind of like project managers and analysts. They're sitting down, usually working with someone in the group, usually the manager, figuring out what work is coming in that year, when it's going to kick off, when it's going to end, what talent they're going to need for that, if they're going to need any surge support for that. It is a tough job. <laughs> and so they're doing like like forecasting. Yeah, basically. Things they forecast are voluntary attrition, involuntary attrition, compensation, market adjustments, new hires, promotions, like all that, because the people are the biggest cost to a business the majority of the time. And so they're, they're doing all the various like sensitivity analysis and just like all the different scenario planning for the fluctuations in cost of labor for business. Oh, yeah. And they also have to think about what happens if the project changes, because at the automotive company I worked for, all of a sudden they said, actually stop working on those three models. So then all of a sudden everything changes because now you have all this talent and where on earth do you put it? <laughs> oh, wow. When have you seen companies start to have, right? Like, I mean, so I'll use Teal. We're 16 people. We don't even have an HR person. Like <laughs> between me and Lara, we kind of share our HR function, our responsibilities. So we're talking about bigger companies as well that I think these functions start to happen, which is one of the tricky things with, with job search advice. I do think that a lot of it skews towards large organizations that have ATSs. I mean, we just paid for a for greenhouse for the first time in four years. Like I made an air table. We didn't, didn't have like a slick ATS, you know? But you know, is it when companies start to hit like the 50 person threshold, 100 person, 1000 person? Yeah, and it's also like so subjective. I'll talk to some people like, oh, that company's little. It's like a thousand people. I'm like, that's a huge company to me, <laughs> you know? But then, <laughs> right. like, well, yeah, because they work with companies that are 100,000 people. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. The size of the company can make a world of difference on what HR looks like. And I, I feel like I'm definitely guilty of talking specifically <laughs> about large corporations too. You've worked with like large international like conglomerates. 
Yeah, it's interesting because in college, I went to a, I'll do air quotes, a smaller college, maybe a mid-sized college. It was maybe 15,000 people total. A lot of those organizations were really small. So I did my internship with Honda in the summer of right before my senior year. So that was a big switch going from these really small organizations to then jumping into an internship at Honda. It was so completely different. And I think that was really beneficial as an HR person to see both sides because they could not be more different. Something that you had to experience there also is like international HR, right? I mean, if you're sort of, if your remit is the U.S., you probably have to deal with less international law, but I feel like there's actually no way to avoid it either because people do transfer, people do travel, you end up like helping people with visas. Like that was another thing that at WeWork HR was responsible for was helping people with visas and inter-country transfers. You know, someone who was on the UK team was now going to be moved to the US because they got a promotion to be a director and run a bigger scope. And now they were in HQ. Like all those things are super complicated. Oh yeah, we had at Honda so many expats and we had a team of maybe four or five HR people and their job was one of the women helped with language navigation. She offered English classes and helped them get up to speed on the language. Another one helped with, I don't even know what to call it, like logistics of living in the U.S. So helping them figure out where to live. Relocation. Yeah. What helping them get cars, helping them get their driver's license, things like that. There's so much that goes into it. So jobs get created. You use workforce planning, trying to like weave how I got here back in my head. We talked about workforce planning. You, you've got these positions are we still like three months out from a job being posted online? Yeah, it's still so many levels of approval that it needs to go through. Even at smaller companies, I feel it takes a while to get posted just because you usually have less resources. So it everything takes a little while longer, too. So I've got my budget. It's now been sort of now allocated over time. All right. I got four designers. I can do one per quarter, assuming also that we're not, we haven't even talked about like reforecasting because say we miss our goals. Now, like everything gets changed, but we'll just assume we're going according to plan and we're hitting our budget. So now what? Okay, I'm in Q1. My budget's approved. I get to hire a designer. Now what? Now, hopefully you put together a good job description that attracts candidates, hopefully. <laughs> and then you can post that job description once it's gone through HR. You know, you're making sure it's compliant with everything. And then you hope someone bites. So tell me a little bit about that. On this show, we love the nitty gritty. So like assuming it's a good, who helped me write that JD? Like as the hiring manager, did I do it myself? Does like HR have templates? Do they give me like comp bands I need to stay in? Because this now, now it's like, now we got to make it real. It's like, sure, we had these like estimates in the budget, but now it's like it's real. Now there's new transparency laws in different states. It's remote, not remote. It's on site. Like give me the nuts and bolts of even just like putting together the JD. Yeah, so hopefully it's not a free-for-all and HR does have some kind of template. <laughs> I think, too, the leader can always start off with the job description they might already have from that department, start from there. Hopefully they're also working with their subordinates, so the people who will eventually be peers to this person to understand what are we missing, what can we add to this team that will make it better. And it's really tough to write job descriptions as well because a lot of times women and people of color will not apply to a job description unless they meet 100% of the qualifications. So you want to make sure you're not overshooting and asking for too much. So that's really important to keep in mind, as well as you have to sit down with the HR team, figure out what would a good compensation range be, figure out if that's up to par with the market, figure out 
how detailed it needs to be, especially if you are hiring remote and you're hiring in different states. What does that look like? It is a lot of back and forth (laughs) between the department, their team, the HR team, and probably finance as well. So I do all that. And now I get the JD. How long have you seen it takes to get like a JD documented to approved? Oh, gosh. (laughs) If it's just a one-off, I would say maybe two months to three months. I guess if they're really quick, maybe they could turn it around in a month. But a project I'm on at work now, it was a job analysis for the entire company. So that's something that can take multiple years to put together. So it really depends on the scope, if it's a one-off or if it's they're really redoing it for the whole company. Right. And like you said earlier, if it's a new position that didn't exist, then even more complicated, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. You got to figure out what's missing and what actually is necessary. I think sometimes even recruiters and HR people, we can get really caught up in, what if we could find someone with this? And it's like, do you really need that? Or do you need someone with a bachelor's degree? Or do you need someone with a master's degree? It's really tough to figure out what you, air quotes, need. Yeah, actually, for if anyone wants to go deep on that topic, we had an episode with Kristen Fife where we go into OFCCP and lots of good stuff there around government regulation. If you put it as a required, the people have to meet 100%. So that's like a whole nother thing that you know goes in here. Yeah, and just like how meticulous. Now, have you seen a difference or is there any research that you know of where there's like the basic qualifications, the BQs, Kristen taught me, <laughs> or the PQs, the preferred qualifications, I like to call them the nice to haves. Like, do people still put the same kind of pressure on themselves? You know, like you talked about women and uh, people of color. Does that really apply to the basic requirements or the whole gamut of response, like the whole JD, when they put that kind of pressure on themselves? I think it probably depends a lot on the job market too, because if you are already feeling a little insecure in your abilities, if you see that, okay, I have the basic qualifications, but I don't have the preferred qualifications and a thousand people have already applied, it's going to feel a little bit more like an uphill battle if you don't have those preferred quals. So I think it's really important to even think those through. Like you you really could be off-putting people from applying. And I've even seen job descriptions lately say, you know, even if you don't meet all of these, please apply anyway. And I think that's a really great way for companies to encourage more applicants too. So now I guess a little bit more advice for anyone on the hiring side. Like, are you better off with a sort of looser JD Right. Because I know like when I'm hiring, I was like, I'm going to make this thing super detailed so I get the exact person. But am I actually sort of hurting myself in putting it so specific that people do have the ability, but they're almost like overwhelmed by it. And I feel most people want to succeed in a job and they don't want to set themselves up for failure, that it could actually do more harm than good and, and scare away really great candidates. Yeah, I immediately think of the government job descriptions because those are just so long And especially with those, a lot of times there's details on how to apply. So you might have a really specific instruction in the middle of a six-page job description, and you might be losing candidates that way. Especially in the government world, you can't really afford to be losing that many candidates because you're probably not getting as many as you would in in the private sector. So I think it's important to keep it specific enough that some of the things that you are positive that you need are in there, but maybe some of the nice to haves you don't go as detailed in, so you're not scaring people away with a really long and complicated JD. Got it. It's almost like what I tell people with comp negotiation. Just like, be sure what you really need. 
Yeah. Don't play games. Just like be sure what you really need. And <laughs> that's it. Just, you know, keep it simple. Okay. So it takes two months to get that. You know, now I get it approved. And let's talk a little bit about how like recruitment allocation happens, right? Because that really is recruiters don't, at least in what I've seen, the recruiting function does not tend to report into the business function, right? So I, I was chief growth officer at WeWork. Under me, I had real estate development and sales. And our sales team was hiring like crazy. And they really wanted to be able to control their resources and do the recruiting. But ultimately, recruiting sat within HR. And so we almost like couldn't pick who we wanted. We got lucky. We had assigned like a really fantastic recruiter. But it's almost like a, a service relationship, right? Like they help they like recruit and hire on behalf of another function, but they actually aren't responsible for the budget of the recruiters internally. Now it does get a little funny when they hire external recruiters. We should talk about that. Um, but let's just keep it internal for a second. So yeah, how do I now work with my internal recruiter? How does like that get allotted? How are they measured against their performance to help me make these hires that I need that I'm responsible for, but I don't manage the recruiters? Yeah, I would say recruiting is easily one of the hardest jobs. It is really tough because you don't have control over the budget. So even if you have a candidate you really like, you don't have the budget to give them more compensation. Even if you think someone's a really good fit for the role, maybe the hiring manager doesn't think they're a good fit for the role. So you're really trying to balance what the hiring manager needs, what the hiring manager wants, and then you're also balancing what the compensation team wants. And then on top of that, you're also trying to build some kind of relationship with these candidates and figure out what they want. So it's so much juggling. And I think they don't get enough recognition for that work. So, I mean, before we started recording, you talked a little bit about a little foray you did in recruiting. And I'm a big fan of recruiters. I think they do really, really, really hard work. I think the vast majority, I always say that because not everyone's perfect, but the vast majority really mean well. They're on the, the side of the candidate. Internal recruiters don't get comp bumps as people think they do. It's just a really hard emotional job. I mean, like what, what was your experience doing it? Yeah, it is really, really tough, especially because as much as we say, you know, you shouldn't talk about your personal lives in interviews, a lot of times people still do. And then there's still one woman I remember so clearly. We did an interview with her and I think she had a newborn and maybe a toddler and she had lost her previous job and she was telling us all about this. And of course, I'm devastated for her, right? Like she doesn't have an income. She has these kids she needs to take care of. She's a single mom. But you can't take that into account. So I remember the day we chose not to hire her, I left in tears because I was just so sad for her. And that happens every day. That's happening constantly where you're learning about the stories of these people and you can't do anything to help them. It's really a tough spot to be in. It's tough. It's a really hard job, really hard job on, on many levels. And I think, I think it's harder when you're an internal recruiter. That's not to say that being an agency recruiter is easy or, or anything, but I just think that there's, there's just like different financial incentives to operate in different ways. And it's just, I think it's just like inherently more transactional. I have a great episode 
depending on when this comes out with Keith Schneider, who talks about he's, he's done both and he sort of talks about the differences. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And yeah, it's different. Being internal is hard because right? you're also still working with that hiring manager. You got to like maintain. You just got to keep a lot of people happy. Yeah, it's a lot of people to keep happy. And a lot of times you sacrifice yourself being happy to keep them happy. <laughs> so. I get a recruiter assigned. Ideally, there's like someone who supports my function already. Right? So recruiting is oftentimes functionally organized. Right? So there may be a recruiter who focuses on, like Keith called it business and product, kind of like as like the first subdivision, but then it can start to like subdivide even further. Again, at WeWork, we had a, a few recruiters focused just to the sales team because we were hiring. So, and then you have regional. Uh, so, you know, geography gets, gets complicated there as well. But job... Who posts the job? Like who's got their hands on the keyboard, like putting the job online? Typically what I've seen, it's usually the recruiters or someone in HR that has access to the applicant tracking system where they can actually get in and get that posted. I don't know that I've ever seen a manager doing it. Yeah, so it's like some HR function, right? So even the hiring manager is like, is now dependent on someone else to get it onto the website so they can start to collect candidates. Everything has to run through the recruiter which creates a lot of work. <laughs> so the job's online and it's in an applicant tracking system, which is oftentimes connected to what's called an HRIS, Human Resources Information System. Some companies have them integrated, a la Workday, PeopleSoft. Some have different that then are like integrations. So like Greenhouse might talk to Workday or something, depending on how companies want to do it. But I do think that the general movement is to like have an all-in-one platform. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think when you have at Honda, for maybe the first year I was there, we had multiple systems. And I think people underestimate how much work that is to have systems that don't talk to each other. Because let's say you're recruited, you plug in all your information when you're applying to the job. Then when you start the job, you have to do the onboarding. And if those systems don't talk to each other, someone has to manually move your information over or they have to send it to you via maybe a Workday link and say, hey, please re-upload all your information here so we can keep it and track it. And that's why you'll see most places using Workday, because even though I don't know that they create a great candidate experience for applicants, on the HRIS side, they have a pretty complete system, whereas some of the other ones maybe aren't all in one. Yeah, we used it at WeWork. And the driving reason was they also had an ERP, which Enterprise Resource Planning, which was our so many acronyms when you're in like the <laughs> enterprise world, because that was all of our finance, like all of our billing, then all the cost allocation. And so I think like, there's this dream of having it all in one place, but then you end up having like a tool that's mediocre at a lot of things. And so, you know, the sort of the counterbalance or the countervailing pressure is to use a lot of point solutions that are really good at one thing, but then getting them to integrate is super difficult. Yeah, just awful. <laughs> yeah, and especially at the enterprise. I think we see all these cool things like Zapier and it's like, oh, it's great for these like cool little SMB tools. But like at the enterprise level, that doesn't happen like that. And then you also have all sorts of crazy data privacy and a lot of things that are really important. And that's where these enterprise systems really come into play. Let's talk a little bit about ATS a little bit. A lot of people think that the ATS, its primary function is for screening. But having just gone through the implementation of Greenhouse, and I did a lot of the implementation work myself, that's just not where the value is. 
the value is in like a bunch of email templates, a bunch of like workflow planning, you know, moving people through the pipelines, but it doesn't do anything on the screening. Like it gives me a nice like view to like quickly skim PDFs in the way that it chooses to, well, resumes and how it renders a preview. So there is something about like the parsability and how well it converts to a preview. We had one the other day that basically turned into gobbledygook. We still downloaded the PDF and we saw it. So it's no big deal, but it was extra work because it didn't like sort of come through nicely. But as you've implemented and deployed some of these systems, like what do you see as like the main sort of purchasing criteria? Oh gosh, it can be really tough in different areas too. So I worked on a performance management integration where the company had merged with other, I guess I'll say units of the company. And each unit of the company had been using different performance management systems. So I think my company used success factors, the manufacturing side used something else. So we needed for a year while we got success factor set up, we needed like an intermediary. (laughs) And so we worked with a vendor to figure out how on earth do we get this set up in a year? So that was one of our criteria was getting it set up really quickly. Another one was making sure it was easy to use, easy to access. So there's a lot of user design that goes into it actually going through and saying, you know, if I was using this, would I be tempted to click that button? What does that button do? So (laughs) figuring out how easy it's going to be for them to use. A big thing for me, because I was an HR analyst, is figuring out how the data is going to report out because sometimes it can spit out data that is just unusable or something that you have to mess around with so much to get it to be usable. So there are so many criterias that go into it. And I don't know that a lot of them are applicant experience. (laughs) Yeah, 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 that's for sure. Lots of things to please. Okay, so job gets posted online. And that's kind of where we wanted to get to. I think there's a lot of content out there on once, you know, people apply, recruiters screen them, then interviews get set up. But I don't feel like a lot of what we talked about is out there for like job seekers to understand. And so I think that was a really good in-depth view of the nitty gritty of the behind the scenes and like, you know, the six months to get a job posted, which was, which is crazy. Yeah. I think there's a lot of HR processes that take so much longer than anyone (laughs) would ever think that it would take. What I was hoping we could do is just shine a light on why so much pressure is on getting these jobs right. right. If you follow Morgan, you'll see that a lot of her content is on resumes and interviewing because she sees just like how hard it is to get that job posted and how precious that job is. You know, like for that hiring manager, again, if they don't fill it, they lose it. But if they don't get the right person, then they can't refill it because that budget might be gone. So it's just a lot goes into into getting these jobs online. I mean, anything that you'd think is like critical to look at, like are there parts of the JDs that get like extra scrutiny or like when you're when you've seen folks work with hiring managers, like, well, this is it needs to have this thing. So let's get that like on the first line of the requirements or something like any kind of like tips or cues on on where to look. Yeah, I started thinking about the project I'm on now because there are some parts of the job description, I think, that weigh a little bit more than others and we won't even realize it. And I don't even know that I realized it until I started working on this project where we're looking through each of the tasks and we say, okay, this skill is showing up again and again and again. So if you could read through the job description and figure out the core skill sets, you know, the ones that are showing up task after task after task, how can you emphasize those and make sure that all of your bullet points are articulating one or multiple of those skill sets at once? Yeah, that's, and I think it's like, 
Kristen talks about this, Kristen Fife, the like the hard skills are really what, you know, once you start to get into like leadership positions, but it's like, if there's hard skills in a JD, that's probably because they really want you to have them. Yeah, I see a lot of people, almost every resume I get has attention to detail, communication, those things that also aren't very searchable because I don't know anyone in recruiting who thinks, hmm, I need someone who's good at communicating. Let me search that. <laughs> that's not something they're looking for usually when they're searching. Yeah, it's kind of table stakes. It's like, that's, you're just kind of supposed to be able to do that. It's a given, right? <laughs> Morgan, this was awesome. I learned a ton in this conversation. Sorry if I rambled like that. I just had so many good questions and like, I'm, I'm so curious about these things. And hopefully one day at Teal, we have to deal with some of them. Hopefully not all of them. <laughs> <we can be. laughs> but how can folks find you online and follow along with all the amazing advice you give? I'm at Resume Official on TikTok and Resume Official 101 on Instagram because someone took the original username, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and are, you're, you're, you give good advice on LinkedIn as well, right? Oh, yes. LinkedIn. My name on there is Morgan Sanner, MHRM at the end, just to add that in. <laughs> yeah, those certifications. Amazing. We'll link to all that in the show notes. But if you don't get to those, at least you know where to find Morgan. Morgan, this was amazing. Thank you so, so much for all these amazing insights. And thanks for hanging out with me. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. We are here to help job seekers. The point of this show is to give you the behind the scenes look at the hiring practices of companies and to debunk a lot of the myths and fear mongering that's out there. So if you like the show, please subscribe. Would love for you to write me on LinkedIn or comment on one of my posts if you'd like to be a guest. We're really looking for practitioners that are in the hiring role, whether it be a hiring manager or a recruiter. We wanna give people that inside view to what it looks like like to be hired and to understand the inside view of how companies operate. So please let me know. And if you're job searching, check out Teal, tealhq.com. We are here to help you land a job you love. All right, thanks. And we'll catch you on the next one.